welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime, uh, crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our, our, our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And yes, indeed, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is Donna Gore again, uh, your host coming to you on Saturday. Um, and we have a very interesting show today. Um, it is not regarding the aftermath of crime, although I think you'll find it very interesting because we are portraying someone who has had a shattered life in um, a few uh, manners of speaking, who has picked up the pieces and forged a new path uh, for her life and hope with um, uh, disability and other issues. And I I think it's going to be um, a very informational and as well as entertaining show. So um, I look forward to everyone listening, uh, and uh, so I'll say uh, it's always a, a great way to start off the holiday weekend with Delilah Jones, and good morning, Delilah. Thank you so much for being being with me and for being with Kristen on a, on a holiday weekend. You're the best in the West. Wow. <laughs> That's just, I'm glad you think so. We do what we have to do, right? And you well, know, once yeah. again, I I got I have pat you on the back as well once in a while, and uh, thank you for finding some of the most interesting guests and and to put on some of the most interesting shows. And this week is no exception. Um, I think this is going to be very informative. And like you said, we we have a little entertainment um, in the back pocket as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. And so um, thank you for that, Delilah. Um, Mutual Admiration Society there. Kristen uh, Dockendorf is our guest today. She is a retired uh, master's level teacher from um, the uh, eastern part of Connecticut. And uh, she was an art teacher and and with also other talents for over 32 years. And um, part of the focus of of our show is going to be with how to deal with legal blindness. And uh, I think there's a lot of misperceptions and myths about blindness, and people may know that that's what I do for my paid living. I work with people who have low vision and um, total vision. And um, so I'm going to give a little precursor to that, but I want to welcome Kristen first to the Shattered Life family of shows Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your talents. It's a pleasure to have you, Kristen. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and, and share my story with everyone. Well, well, great, great. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of information to know because people have stereotypes and misperceptions regarding blindness all around the way. And I just want to give a little plug to my agency, the Bureau of um, Rehabilitation uh Services and Services for the Blind Department of Rehab Services in Connecticut. And um, we have the seal of approval from our director, Brian Sigman. He was very excited that you're doing this today, Kristen, um, and as well as other employees. 
So um, just wanted to tell tell people a little bit regarding blindness, and you can jump in there um, regarding retinitis, retinitis pigmentosa because that is the specific eye disease that you have. Correct. But um, from from the standpoint of general information, um, and I won't tell you technical medical um, information, uh, but just what people should know. Um, blindness is blindness in two eyes. There's no such thing as being blind in one eye. Um, and every state has a uh, has a statutory definition. And um, the the definition is a person who is a, a person is blind if his or her central vision, meaning looking straight out, the visual acuity does not exceed 20 over 200 in their better eye with with corrective lenses. And they also have a part of that definition having to do with your side vision, your peripheral vision, um, uh, which is a little more technical. But just that's the part tell- that that's the part that retinitis pigmentosa has a lot to deal with is the peripheral okay. vision and losing losing that. And that is that is the side vision, correct? Correct. Right. Um, just to let people um, give them a better understanding, a simple definition of the the statutory would be um, a person who has 20-20 vision could be standing somewhere and looking at an object from 200 feet and see it clearly. However, a legally blind person would have to see, would have to be 20 feet uh, close to that object to see it in the same manner. So there's a big difference there in in terms of what of what of what that means. Absolutely, and, and I'm glad you clarified that because I think a lot of people have heard, oh, 2020 vision, what is that? But um, don't really know what that relates to. And I think um, you know, being able to think of yeah, 200 feet away, you can see it, but you know, I have to be 20 feet away. You know, it's um, that's that's a much clearer picture. Right. And um, just just to let let people know as well that um, th- we when you go to an eye doctor they they test your visual acuity and the integrity of the of the anatomy and the eye structures. However, there are also other doctors that we refer to called low vision, and low vision um, is vision loss that cannot be corrected with conventional glasses or contact lenses or surgery or medication, but these low-vision doctors are a specialty all of their own, and they, they do an a, a evaluation to see what they can do to improve your residual or remaining vision loss, and it may be um, providing contrast with dark and light. It may be um, um, giving you certain types of visual adaptive aids, special magnifiers, uh, closed-circuit televisions so that you can read something with magnification. It, it may be, uh, you know, better lamps, uh, brighter light bulbs so that you can enhance what it is you, you can see. So if they, you say, oh, I've already gone to the eye doctor, a low-vision doctor is a specialist that that deals with capturing your residual vision and helping you make the most of what you have. 
Right. Absolutely. And um, I think it's a, a good time to put my plug in, too, for Besby. Um, they're a fantastic agency. And um, I also qualify in the low vision range because RP is not something that's correctable or um, surgically or medically or anything at the moment. Um, they are doing research and stuff, but I actually have an atypical form, so I personally don't qualify for studies, but a lot of people do. Um, so there's research, but um, it's I fall in that low vision. And uh, the people at Besby, both when I was working and not working, have been amazing in their uh, help that they give people that have low vision. And I would strongly suggest anybody out there listening that wonders if, you know, somebody could help them, that Besby is the place to go. Right. Well, just in terms of that, let me, excuse me, let me say a little bit about that. If someone is wondering um, and uh, locally or within the state of Connecticut um, how you actually get um, associated with our agency is that your, your uh, eye doctor has to send an eye report uh, to our agency telling, telling us that you, in fact, meet the statutory definition of legal blindness. And they have to send it to our agency, and and then you have to become a registered client with our agency in order to receive services. And then a social worker is assigned there, and then we have a full complement of other of other um, professionals called rehabilitation teachers, orientation and mobility instructors, and we also have the vocational rehabilitation component as well as the department I work for uh, where we have fine people running concessions, uh, um, cafeterias, gift shops, micro markets, they're actual entrepreneurs, and a full complement of um, children's services as well. So we do a lot of things, and um, I'm very proud of that. And I'll just um, very quickly, if people are in Connecticut, and and we we also have uh, services for deafblind clients and a multitude of, of uh, clients that we see are elderly, um, and that's the biggest percentage of our population. Um, so, if anyone is wondering, I'll just give the numbers very quickly, and then then we can focus on you, Kristen. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's okay. tied together, so that it is definitely part of me. So that's fine. Well, sure. Um, the the one eight hundred number just in Connecticut is one eight hundred eight four two four five one zero, or if you are local in the in the Greater Hartford area, it's eight six zero six zero two four thousand that you can call, and there is someone that will help guide you if you're wondering if you or your relative would be able to benefit from our services. And let's just say in the wake of uh, uh, the horrible budget deficits and cuts that are in the face of every agency in our state and across the country, frankly, our, uh, the mantra or our real mission is that regardless of where we have to cut, our core services of serving people is the most important thing. So where we can cut, we will not cut core services to our clients. And our clients are served from death, excuse me, from birth to death. So there's no such thing as, well, I, I already received services from you, so I can't get anything else. Um, so whenever you have a need, you are always a client of ours, okay? Absolutely. Right, right. 
So do you want to go into a little bit more about um, RP or uh, start about how it may have affected you when, when it started and, and take it from there? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, first of all, am a very creative person, which um, is a blessing and a curse in both ways. So uh, sometimes I might get off on a tangent and just go with it. But um, when my I was about five in school, um, I did the you know eye test thing that everybody does, and I didn't do very well on it, and ended up going to see an ophthalmologist, and and that's when actually my parents were told that you know I had RP and um, retinitis pigmentosa, and that you know, I may not be able to learn to read or anything like that um, because at that time what they knew about RP was that it was a, a quickly progressing um, degenerative disease. Um, it's a genetically inherited thing, and um, it came from my father's mother's sister, so it's kind of a very sideways kind of thing. Um, but anyway, it is a genetically passed on thing. So anyway, it, it you know, didn't really, I didn't know any different as a five-year-old. I mean, you are the way you are, you know, it's it's right. just kind of how it is. But they were told, you know, don't put me in special ed classes or anything because um, I was a pretty smart, creative kid. You know, I was making stuff out of ropes and tying things together and figuring out ways to, you know, let my doll swing with me on the same swing at the same time by rigging up some kind of, you know, contraptions. And, you know, so I I certainly was not going to be labeled as a special ed kid in in the 60s, you know, when I grew up. I mean, now it's a a whole different ball of wax. Um, my, My complication is that I actually am dyslexic. And um, a lot of the problems that I had growing up were a combination of not being able to see very well, but also not being able to interpret very well in um, in a visual form. So and it how was, does that how does that play out um, in practical terms? The, the dyslexia okay. for you. Well, it, it's it's actually quite amazing, and uh, I think anybody that has it or wonders if they have it when you start thinking about it, it, it like becomes completely obvious. One of the, the best examples I can give is learning to tell time. You've got a big hand and a little hand, and you've got hours and minutes. So you've got things assigned to each other. And what happens with me is it's like a, a, something that flips, like one side says hours, one side says minutes. And one side says, you know, big hand, one says little hand, and it flips back and forth. It just flips. And and you can you know that one belongs with the other, but it's really hard to keep straight which one belongs with which. So that's that's like one of the thinking parts. Um an example like with my guide dog, and I knew this was we'll talk about that later, but um I feared a lot of it because doing things in sequence gets difficult. Like you forget which, which order things go in. Like academically you can say it, but when you go to do it, it doesn't always happen the right way. 
and um, rights and lefts, like you know what your right is and you know what your left is, but when you say it, it doesn't always come out the way you mean it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Those are some real like practical word-type examples. And then there's number dyslexia as well where numbers flip back and forth. So if your phone number was 5340, I might say 5430. And and it's the right numbers, but not necessarily in the right order. Right. So well, you know, it can be very challenging. On top of the RP, I can I I just it, it, it must is be and very mentally uh, exhausting. It it is, and a, and another part that's um, I think children especially because now that I'm older, it, it doesn't do it as much. But the words on a page can actually move. Like you don't. It, it, People take for granted that you look at a page of words and you can read the page of words. And there's so many people that struggle with reading a page of words, um, whether it's from vision or other kinds of disability type things like dyslexia. And um, it's really hard to understand it if you don't see it, you know. And um, so I think when I was growing up, people didn't really know. I mean, they knew I couldn't see very well. So they just kind of assumed that some of my difficulties were because of not seeing very well. And, in fact, that's true. Um, but it also, <laughs> I, I also had some learning issues that uh, um, back in the 60s were, were not as um, well known as they are now. Right, and just just to interject uh, one thing, if people are interested, a couple of years ago we did uh, a podcast, Delilah and I, with Diane Weaver Dunn, who is the uh, with uh, the executive director of Chris Radio, who uh, is a special inf- radio information service that deals uh, with providing information for people who are blind or just dyslexic or whatever. And it's still a fascinating show. So if you'd like to go in and listen to that, that is, that is something that's available as well. Let's um, uh, um, progress a little bit and tell us how, you know, as you were, after your childhood, and, and obviously you're a very intelligent person, how Thank did you, you go about <laughs> treating, um, picking your your career, and how did that play out in terms of, um, you know, being an art teacher? Right. I know. It's, it's um, well, as I said before, I was always a person who was making things. You know, I mean, my, my mind was always going and, and figuring out ways to do stuff. And that's, that's your mind. You know, that's not your eyeballs. And right. um, as, I, as I told the kids at school when I, when I teach them, you know, art, art comes from your heart. It doesn't come from what you necessarily see. It comes from what you feel and what you feel like you got to share. And, you know, I, I sort of live that attitude. It's not something that I necessarily chose. It's, it's the way I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because I don't see very well doesn't mean it changes what's in my heart and my brain. Um, you know, I luckily, um, both because of not seeing well and dyslexia, having a creative mind is an excellent compensation because you find ways to do things that, you know, a person who is sighted would automatically take for granted that you just do it this way. But, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who has a, a difficulty, 
can find a way to do things in another way and still accomplish the same stuff. I think that's an excellent point. And as a person with spastic cerebral palsy and over 50 surgeries, I, I can totally relate to that statement. So that Absolutely. is really, really good. Christian, whether growing up or in your adult life, what did you feel or what do you feel is the greatest frustration for you? And how do you deal with that as far huh. as, you know, I know you've got to have some kind of frustrations dealing with this particular thing. You know, it, it it's funny you say that. The first word that comes to mind is male. I hate male. It's, it's, M-A-I-L? Yes. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those things that for people who don't read well, you know, you can't just sort your mail and go, okay, junk, junk, junk. It takes a long time to read mail. And it's just one of those challenges that uh, I tend to put off. (laughs) And luckily I have a friend that um, is very good and actually yesterday sorted all my mail for me. Um, So... You know, asking for help is definitely something that I have learned to do and understand that the people who are giving you help feel good about doing it. And, you know, that's one thing that when I had to give up my driver's license was one of the most difficult things is that, you know, then you have to start relying on other people and you feel like you're putting them out and, you know that's a that's a, a burden to bear, and um, I think once I sort of um, understood that it makes other people feel good to help, and absolutely, um, there is, I think that really me, helped me. Yeah, uh, just to 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 um, add to that, we in our adult services program we do have a volunteer services coordinator who matches people. Um, to provide such services as being a male, M-A-I-L assistant, um, a driver, helping people to get groceries, whether with a list or accompanying them, being a friendly visitor and certain things like that. And they are very, uh, she's very diligent about screening them, background checks with the, uh, you know, the uh, DMV and all of these types of things. Uh, so we, although it is, it, it gets difficult with regard to providing a good match in terms of personality and you have to have the right amount of insurance if you're going to to drive them legally and and that kind of thing. But when it works, it works. So you are eligible to have a Desby volunteer as well, Kristen, if you need one. Oh, good, good. (laughs) So just wanted to let you know that. um, Can you share some some, um, stories with regard to your teaching career and then as things got more more difficult um what what seemed to be happening um in in that realm right well um you know like you like i said and you said i've always art has always been the thing i've loved to do and um my parents never discouraged me from that um i you know thank them endlessly um so teaching at the school i taught at um for all 32 years was a a great school. It was a pre-K through eight. So we had uh, three-year-olds up to generally 14, 15-year-olds. And I was the only art teacher there for quite a while. We did have a couple years um, that we also had one part-time teacher as well. Um, But, (laughs) 
you know, some of the, I can go into tons of stories about teaching and, and that kind of thing, but I think for this, one of the, the funny things that happened was, you know, eventually I had to give up my driver's license, and um, I luckily had some uh, teachers that lived in my area, and they graciously agreed to drive me. And the relationships formed by that act alone were wonderful. Um, you know, so again, when you ask for help, you get a lot more than you thought you were going to get. Um, but one of the things that I also had to do was um, get an assistant. And anybody that knows about special ed process knows about IEPs, individual instruction plans, and that kind of thing. Well, I actually had one for myself <laughs> as opposed to the student um, because it got to the point in my classroom, which is, you know, 25 kids and one teacher, that I was feeling a little vulnerable in terms of legal issues because I didn't want to get sued if some kid got hurt and I didn't see him. Or another couple things that happened were they put me on lunch duty and it was like just seeing silhouettes in the room. Lunch duty? How, yes. how could they have even thought about that? When, right, when we and know that's that not point. 25 kids. That's 100 kids, you know. And then they also had me on recess duty. And, again, I'm going, what? this is a ridiculous thing, and I get hit in the head with balls, and I'd run into kids, and, you know, I just felt like this was really – not a smart thing to do. So it took a lot of courage, but I went to the principal and, you know, told them what I thought, and I brought in the ADA laws about reasonable accommodations, and I felt that having an assistant in my classroom would be a reasonable accommodation um, due to my the way that I saw the classroom. And I had to be very careful because, of course, you know, I was the art teacher, and people think, oh, well, you have a blind art teacher. How can you do that? But I was legally blind, which is different than most people's knowledge of totally blind. So, you know, it, it was a difficult thing to, to try to juggle all those sort of pieces, but I really knew that getting an aid in the classroom was the right thing to do, and it definitely was. Um, I felt much more relaxed knowing that somebody had my back, so to speak, in terms of watching the kids. They didn't do anything in terms of running the education. That was all me. And, right. you know, I was totally in charge of all the aspects of teaching. Can um, you give us some examples of the kinds of um, kinds of art you did and was it, you know, hands-on, tactile things? Was it conceptual? Uh, Was it Sure. Um, you know, my, my approach is really that I treat every child as an individual. I don't try to make them into a Picasso or into a Georgie O'Keeffe. You know, I expose them to different types of techniques and media and ways of thinking and then let them take that on and come up with their own expression. So, you know, many times the techniques are three-dimensional, and I love clay. I mean, that's, that's one of my main loves. 
I'm a, a potter at heart, and um, a main part of my story is is my friendship and um, re love with pottery. I did it as a kid, and again in school when I was a kid, and loved it then, and um, did it in I junior high, too. and learned how to use the wheel in junior high, and then you know went to art school and reconnected with it again, and um, once I was get my master's, I I had a pretty serious bout of depression and um, had to get back to myself. I had a three-year-old and um, my husband was working really late shifts and I was teaching and getting my master's and, you know, it just was overwhelming and um, I ended up getting back to pottery again and uh, it was a lifesaver. That's great. How how well, did, Kristen, um, have you have you ever considered, or maybe you've already, you've done this and just haven't told us about it yet? But have you ever considered giving private lessons, perhaps to other, um, you know, visually impaired people? Absolutely, I I would totally love to do that, but I don't have the <laughs> financial means to to get that going. You know, I. I can't. Uh, I'm a retired teacher, and I didn't make it but my now 35 you are years. Unemployed. Yes. Yeah, and you know, you you got to have a studio to do that. And you, uh, you know, I would probably have somebody that would need to be in charge of firing things and um, mixing glazes and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's not something that you can just do out of your house. Um, I would love to, but uh, you know, in terms of Maybe that's something I can figure out some loans that people who work for either arts agencies or disability agencies or a combination of that. You know, I mean, and our vocational rehab department um, has uh, certain protocols that they follow, in, and they've changed recently in terms of you have to think of a, in order for us to give you funding, you have to have a, a career goal that is going to be market, marketable and generate income. It can't be something that's just kind of a catch-as-catch-can. Right. Um, so that sometimes that is a challenge. And I, I can think of so many things, so many venues that you'd be wonderful at and seeing some of your art and, and knowing that. But can you tell us a little bit about the backstory, just to let you know, we've already gone through a half hour of our show. Oh, my and, gosh. Um, yes, we have. And um, with regard to, did you have, I mean, it's so important. My clients are multiply disabled, and typically they do not have a lot of family support and other other people to get them through the many challenges of life. And mm. how did that part of your life go, and what, what were other things that may have been going on? Well, uh, I, uh, you know, obviously I don't see very well, and then the dyslexic part, and then um, the depression part, I really, uh, that was that one kind of threw me for a loop. And um, knowing that that comes back is almost worse once you have had a, a, a you know, pretty major depressive thing. You know, that, that well, can come back. Well, when did that occur? Was that when, when the RP started really grabbing hold and becoming it, progressively worse as a young adult? It was, because I think um, college uh is is very stressful even even in high school and you know reading as much as i had to read and any student has to read when you can't read well is just it's hell 
And, um, you know, thank God that a lot of my classes were art classes. Um, you know, I, I graduated with high honors. So, um, you know, it, it just, it's very, very difficult. And um, mm-hmm. I think trying to work full time and get my master's and all that. So, you know, that was a difficulty. And then um, I was married for about just close to 32 years also. And um, I ended up getting divorced. And, and that was that was quite a a big surprise as well. Um, was this so a consequence my, of your disability that you couldn't cope with it? Um, not so much, but I think what ended up happening is eventually, um, after many, many great years um, with my daughter, who's now 29 and living in Seattle, hey, Lisa, um, and Sherry, <laughs> uh, it's really, we had a, a great growing up. My husband had a great job. Um, everything was really good, and he ended up losing a job. And, um, you know, our, our income went to me. Um, and, of course, by, by that time, it was also the year that I gave up my driver's license. And, wow. uh, you know, you were talking before about becoming a Besby client. And it is one of the most difficult things for someone who is losing their sight to admit it. Yes. The adjustment so, part. It, so with it all is. those factors combined, you just you couldn't keep it together. Nope, and you know I I did go through a a little bout of when I knew like my license was no longer you know valid. I couldn't drive. It's like oh well, I can I don't have to be a designated driver. And I got into uh, you know taking that attitude on a little bit too much and. Um, I, I spent a little time in, in AA and learned a lot there, but um, unfortunately, it's it's also where my ex-husband met his new wife. <laughs> so I introduced them to each other, and that that was a little funky. Um, but you know, it was, well. it's another challenge, and it actually led to some really good things. So uh, you know, out, out of that, I ended up having to move out of my house and move into an apartment because there was no public transportation at my house. And um, I definitely could not be stuck, retired, and not be able to get anywhere, um, not to mention I couldn't afford it. Um, so, you know, that that's a whole other piece that leads me to my life now, which is, you know, a, a whole lot better even though I've gone through a lot of things, the the doors have opened so widely. I mean, my my pottery friends introduced me to sailing, and um, I I got back into sailing when I lived in New Jersey as a kid. I sailed, um, but then I got into sailing again, and the crew member is a totally blind woman who I've gotten to be really good friends with. And um, how does that work? Adaptive sailing, Kristen. Well. It, you know, it, it's interesting because it, it's one of the things that uh, Vicky had is a, um, I, I, it's, it's an electronic device that basically you can set the course to zero where you want to head, and it'll beep louder if you're too far to the right or softer if you're too far to the left. So you can maintain a course of where you're going once you set what zero is. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So I, I can imagine that could play havoc with your dyslexia, possibly. Well, no? I didn't do that. That was Vicky's okay. job. <laughs> okay. And actually, most of the time, our captain, who was fully sighted, he did most of that part. Vicky okay. and I did a lot of the physical labor and um, uh, changing sails and, um, you know, going out and, and holding the sails out tight and just all kinds of more of the physical labor. And and you get really good at just feeling stuff. You know, there's cleats and knots you got to tie. And, um, you know, you, you learn to feel where each other are in the boat so you're not stepping all over each other. And you talk a lot and, you know, you make sure everybody knows where everybody is and what you're doing. And uh, it was just a fabulous, fabulous season. And uh, Vicky brought her guide dog with her on the boat. So it was John and myself, and uh, she's totally blind, and myself, who's legally blind, and her guide dog, and we came in second in the whole league. So it was uh, it was a really wow. awesome, awesome experience. And um, Vicky's the one that got me into uh, my guide dog, and I will forever thank her for that. That's amazing. You know, you don't often hear about that as a sport, and particularly adaptive sailing. Yes. I believe in Boston there's actually um, quite a uh, good program for that, yeah. Yeah, I'm not positive what that is, but um, I definitely have heard that there's something in Boston that does that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean... I, I've stuck with pottery my whole life. That's that's one thing. And um, painting. I really started out as a kid as a watercolor painter. And um, um, I've always loved that. And um, then I, I got into, obviously, all kinds of artwork and weaving and um, love weaving, love teaching weaving and um, and pottery and clay. And that's that's always been a staple for me. So, um this. This might be a good juncture to introduce the fact that you do have a Facebook page, correct? And I do, I do. And uh, can you tell I've, people about that? Sure. It's it's just my name, Kristen Dockendorf, uh, in on Facebook. Can you spell and, it? Um, at the moment, oh, I, you want me I, to? K R I S T E N D O C K E N D O R F F. Correct. Right. And my email address is just the letter K, Dockendorf, at gmail.com. Um, and I probably do better with emails. But anyway, okay. it's – it's. Um, I love to do shows. I've been in a lot of juried shows. And and that means that just you can't have anybody enter, that um, there's actually artists that decide whether your work is good enough to be in the show. And so I've, I've been in quite a few of those. And one of them I thought was really interesting. It was specifically designed for people with disabilities. So I was like, wow, this is great. It was put on by the uh, Hartford Chamber of Tourism, of all things. And um, it was in downtown Hartford. And, you know, I got some pieces accepted into the show. I was totally excited and went to the opening. And mine was the only three-dimensional work in the show. And I said, well, that's kind of silly Everything else was behind glass. And, of course, for someone who doesn't see very well, that's sort of pointless. Um, So (laughs) it it made me think that I need to make work that is specifically designed 
to be touched and to be picked up. And um, none of those please do not touch signs, you know, mine say please do touch. And uh, so I started making a a whole series of uh, sculptures mainly um, and and regular pots as well, but mainly the sculptures that are are designed for vision-impaired people and their sighted friends. (laughs) So they look good, but they also feel good. Are there uh, pictures on your Facebook, Kristen, of, of these? Uh, there probably are. Uh, I I don't know if it's organized quite that way, but um, I could reorganize it. That would be a good idea. Um, sure. I also love doing origami, and many of my origami pieces um, have been in jury shows as well. And um, for people who don't know, that's uh, Japanese paper folding, and um, it's it's another one of those things that I would teach kids at school. And one of the things that people complain about when they try to learn origami is the diagrams are so confusing. So what I would do is make up stories to go with the diagram. So if I tell a story and fold as I'm going, it it helps the kids remember what to do because the story relates to how you're folding. Wow. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And um, another thing I, I love to do was um, make – ocarinas the clay instruments and um i i used to make these clay ocarinas that were people know the world of zelda they'll they'll know what that is um but i always loved uh flute playing and even as a family we we went to this camp and learned to play recorders so our family played together and i've always loved flute and i i studied a lot about native american flutes and started collecting those and I thought, well, I make the ocarinas, maybe I can make, you know, a clay flute. But the material isn't right. It just isn't right. I tried like crazy. And um, I actually ended up learning how to make the Native American flutes after uh, a lot of uh, uh, studying about it. Yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of trial and error and thinking I couldn't do it. And um, in this in this weird circumstance, a friend told me about a path around where I live, and I happened to find a kind of uh, weed that grows like bamboo. And because it's already hollow, I don't have to use any power tools to hollow any anything out. And that's you know when you're vision impaired, power tools are probably not your best friend. Although I know there's people out there that do it, um, yeah. but. I don't. So <laughs> um, I, I found this wood that you can use that um, actually makes making them actually very enjoyable. And uh, ever since I... And I've, we have I've, a picture uh, that we've, we've posted, you know, prior to the show, and it's posted around, and we can and they're absolutely beautiful. And I hope that we can help sell some of them. And I think we have sure. a little treat. We can do that because we have about... 16 minutes left of our show. Would you kindly give us a sample? Because I, I, I was treated to a sample the other day, and I was just blown away. Sure. I'd love to. I'd love to. Okay. All right. I, I got to put the phone down, so hold on. Okay. All right. I put you on speakerphone for a minute. Okay. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay.
Oh, my That's goodness. That's amazing, Kristen. Beautiful. Thank Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. That so that one happens to be tuned in the key of B. Does that remind you of your trip across country when you went to all the Native American places? <laughs> Oh, absolutely it does. And yeah, I'll put you back on regular a, phone. Okay. There was a particular gentleman who made flutes and he had he was actually playing in this um huge art festival that we went to and, and I, I love the sound, I really do. It's very calming. Uh, it's I I'm very into uh, you know, Reiki and, and um healing arts and energy and it just gives you I mean for me, being able to take something that's growing and then turn it into music, it just, like, it, it gets to my soul. <laughs> you are so, so right brain, Kristen. <laughs> isn't it scary? It's scary. <laughs> that, that's great, you know. <laughs> I, I guess but I many dyslexic people are. Yeah. You know, oh. our brains just work a little different. Absolutely. Well, hey, um, now that we've heard that, I feel so calm. Um, but anyway, can you, can we talk um, for a uh, majority of the balance of the show? Because uh, I know we have other people that would be very interested. There's a lot of myths out there with regard to when, when people become blind, they just say, oh, you can get a drive dog. And it's <laughs> not necessarily so. It's not everyone is is um, a good fit for a dog. You have to have a that certain is temperament. It's a lot yes. of responsibility. And I think you yeah. had tried at another point in, in your life, and maybe it wasn't the best uh, yes. time in your life to do so, so you've just revisited that. Tell us I about did. what's involved with uh, guide dog training and where you went and what you're feeling. Oh, I, I'd love to share that. It's it's an amazing, amazing place. And uh, any students that were fellow students of mine, you know, more power to you. I hope your your uh, first couple weeks home is going well. Um, the place that I went to is called the Seeing Eye in Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, plug for Seeing Eye, it's the oldest Yay. guide dog school in the country, and they actually have Seeing Eye dogs. It is a trademark name, um, and they only do dogs for vision impaired people. I know uh, there are plenty service dog organizations that service a variety of needs, but they have specialized in um, vision impairment. So anyway, it, it was an amazing experience. And like I said, my friend Vicki from Sailing um, has been blind all her life, and she's had, I think, seven or eight dogs um, from there because their, their working life um, is really about eight eight years-ish. Um, so, you know, they live longer than that, but as as a working dog. And, it, you know, the, the process is you have to qualify as being legally blind or totally blind. And, again, that, that comes in a variety. I mean, my vision itself is um, in my bad eye. With correction, it's about 2,400. Um, and... And that's with about a one degree of side vision all the mm-hmm. way around. Um, my other eye is is kind of odd in, in that the atypical, atypical part of the RP kicks in. And I have like this area like a donut um, or like 
Swiss cheesy donut where are, are patches that I can't see anything. And then in the central part, I can see, and I'm about 2080 in that. So that part's really pretty good. Um, but there's a whole bunch of parts that just aren't there. And your brain kind of fills in what's not there. And, you know, it's it's interesting because the whole guide dog experience, um, one of the things I was worried about was the dyslexic part and knowing that I had problems with rights and lefts and, and sequencing and things like that. It was really, really difficult. And I, I went through many a box of Kleenex um, just knowing that I understood everything but it just wasn't working the way I wanted it to, you know, and, and the way I knew it could be. And then um, what do you have to do when, when you enroll in the, in the program? It, it's a residential program, right? And yes, it's absolutely. very intensive, like Extremely. eight hour days of training with the dog one-on-one. Oh yeah. All, all day. There's, there's a group of 20 students and then there's five instructors. So you, you have your own little group of four and then um, one instructor. And uh, we're there for just short of a month, and you get your dog after two days. Um, So you don't get your dog the first day. You get them after two days. And then you're with them 24-7 from then on. Um, It's not like a baby when you send them back to the nursery, you know. You are with them from then on. And we go right into Morristown and start walking around the town and learning the roots and uh, trusting that the dog is going to stop you and and uh learning all the commands and I mean there's so much to learn that you don't even think about like going through a doorway you're like oh well you just push the door open well if you've got a guide dog on your left side and you have a door hinge that's on your left side the dog's going to get stuck so you have to learn to roll through the doors you know, so there's there's all these little things that, not to mention, you know, your wrist has to be a certain way and you have to be able to maintain your balance when you walk and you have to keep your elbow bent and, you know, you have to shift your weight, you got to keep your body straight. I mean, there's so many things to learn that, you know, in the very beginning it's just, it's really hard. But the people there understand that and they're so supportive. And like with me and my learning style, um, you know, they, they went and got a person who knows about that. And instead of just telling me a lot of words, they would physically move me and say, you know, put your body like this. And it's like, oh, I get that. And, you know, explain, well, the traffic is coming this way. Uh, you have to wait because they're going to be, you know, crossing in front of you, whereas if you wait for the people that are coming towards you, you know, depending on where you are on the road, you'll know you're safe to go. So, you know, they explained things in a way that made it easy for me to understand. So once I got over that, it it was just like natural. The switch came on, and the dog and I were bonding, and, you know, they, they raised the puppies there for a little while. Then they go out to a puppy-raising um, family, and then they come back to the center for about five months of training and then another month of training with us. So even people who have had guide dogs before come and go through the 20, they go through 23 days of training um, because they have to learn the new dog and the new dog has to learn them. I mean, having a guide dog is a partnership. It's not just, you know, you're taking a dog for a walk. I mean, it, it is so not that. 
You know, right, and sometimes um, they have to go back for retraining if there's a problem. Absolutely. You know, and um, it's not in people may may be aware of this or may not when when they're in harness, they are working, and you are not supposed to go up and pet them and you know fondle them and and cause a distraction. Um, Absolutely, and that's that's one of the things that um, my my new career I would like to kind of you know, combine teaching people and educating people about some of the blindness etiquette and guide dog etiquette and cane etiquette and just how they work. I mean, part of me as a a teacher person is that, you know, if I see somebody looking at you, it's because they don't understand something. So I just assume explain it to them, you know. And and I think as now having a guide dog um, and time, I can go into schools and, and senior centers and libraries and wherever and explain some of the misconceptions that people have. Right. Well, I think there's there's a call for that. And I guess it's just a question of uh, if you can, you know, sustain an income with that. There's always these opportunities that are there, but you know, in the in these days, it's it's difficult. So I'm I'm hoping that you can you can forge something with your VR counselor that is going to give you an income, because Thank you're too you. talented, <laughs> you're too talented and smart to to sit home and not not be making an income. Let's put it that way. That's right. You know? I mean, I I'm uh, making a lot of flutes is what I'm doing. Are so, you? Uh, well, oh yeah. Can you tell people what you you make? Uh, I may be writing a follow up blog on this show because it's just, you know, I, I think um, it would perhaps it would help you. It will help me. I love to write, and it w- would explain things. But just in terms of if they look at the photos that, that we put up. What what would you charge for something like the one you just play, played? Uh, forty dollars. Okay, and I'm yeah, sure that's, pro- which is actually a uh, not bad if you actually look into other Native American flutes. They're in the hundreds, and that's and because it, it, they're they're not made from locally harvested stuff, and and um, you know they it's it's a different kind of thing. The the ones that are really expensive, which I collect, I love them dearly. Um, but you know, I love my own. <laughs> it's even better knowing I made them. Mm-hmm. And, and you're and you're making pottery as well, correct? For, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and my origami as well. I make all kinds of origami things and ornaments and stuff like that. So um, yeah. yeah, that's that's a whole other part of of uh, my my retired life is is changing my um, my. Uh, Web page. I had a really great one as a teacher, but once I retired, it it vanished <laughs> because it was through the school. So um, that that's part of my my new exploits is to get a new uh, page up and going, or or to get a, a a web a web page maybe with some assistance or whatnot. Or to, Absolutely. Um, so well, I may know of a few people I can tell you about, but Good. in um, with regard to um, a message. Um, for our listeners, um, it, whether it be you know philosophical or just what your your future goals are, what would you say? What would you tell people? Do you do you consider that you've had quote unquote a shattered life, or I think your your attitude is such that you've rolled with the punches? Is that right? You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, when I, w- <laughs> I might get choked here, when I was thinking about um, the whole title and everything. And I I did think that 
you know, it, it kind of has been shattered in a way, but what I've done is, you know, put holes in the pieces and tied them up and made a wind chime out of it, you know. Wow, that's, um, a, that's quite an image, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was definitely thinking about that, and I said I, I think that's a really good way to say what's happened, you know. I, I've turned what is in my heart into, you know, kept me me. You know, and um, you kind of reinvent yourself, right? Yeah, you you have to, and and there's no reason not to follow what you truly are. And I think, um, you know, going through everything that I've went through, that it it really helps to get to who you really are. Well, I, I think there's a parallel there for other people that we have on the show with regard to going going through um, crime as well. There's always hope. And you're always, you're having to reinvent yourself and your purpose, isn't that absolutely. right, Delilah? Oh, absolutely. I I just I'm very inspired by this show and and meeting you on the air, Kristen. And um, thank you're you. You're so musically and artfully creative in in so many different areas that uh, it is inspiring. It, you know, it it makes yeah. people like me go, "What are you waiting for?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's well, been nice to meet you too. Yes, yes, definitely. And we are going to have this show available on the archives forever. And Good. Um, maybe you can even put this on your Facebook page and whatever develops in the future. And uh, we want to we want to wish you all the best. And I think that you know, you truly are an inspiration in this. This is but one example of the kinds of people that that we work with at, at our state agency. So even though there's a lot of stress and budget cuts and everything, we have to we have to think about the positives for people that that come through our agency such as Kristen. So I'm so glad that I've had this opportunity. Um, well thank and you. it's it's our pleasure. So let's keep in touch. Definitely. And um, Delilah, thank you so much for taking time out on this busy Saturday. We'll we'll um, we'll see you off air. And Kristen, have have a wonderful long holiday weekend. Okay. I I will, and you as well. And thank you so much for having me on today. I enjoyed sharing. It's wonderful. Okay, thank you so much. And All we'll right. Bye bye. See you next Saturday for sh- another Shattered Life Radio Edition.